Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right. Welcome back to Sunday School. This is now the 16th lesson in our series on spiritual warfare and the full armor of God. And this is the final lesson. This is the final lesson. And, at, uh, yeah, that's good. And at this point, we've looked at all of the armor, and we've covered a lot of material and a great deal of theology over the course of this series. In fact, we've covered so much ground that I felt that there needs to be some sort of debriefing of our tour of duty through Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. And so we're going to spend some time today reviewing the highlights of the material that we've covered. However, this review is by no means going to be comprehensive, as I don't think we even have enough time for something like that, and I think it would be tedious. Instead, what I've opted to do is summarize this series in a somewhat unconventional way by simply providing nine pivotal points that we all need to remember and never forget with regard to our spiritual warfare. And you'll see that as we go through these nine points... We'll be referencing all the components of the armor and some of the major contributions of each component of the armor as well, and that will serve as our review. If you need a handout, there are some up here in the first row. So we're going to do nine pivotal points that we need to always remember, never forget, with regard to our spiritual warfare. And then at the end, I'm going to give one final exhortation to close out the whole series. So that's our roadmap for today, but before we get started, let's go ahead and read our text one last time, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 10 through 20. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual... Sorry, I lost my place here. Uh, cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of the faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication." To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So, 
Let's begin with our nine pivotal points that we need to always remember and never forget. And the first one is this. Always remember, never forget, that you are in a war. You are in a war. We opened this series on spiritual warfare by reading from the book of Judges in order to make the observation that every generation of believers must learn the art of war. Every generation of Christians will be tested to see whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord, to see whether they will be diligent in obeying the commandments of the Lord. You and I are in a war, and we must never forget that. Indeed, in last week's lesson on prayer, we quoted from John Piper extensively, and he had some scathing words of criticism directed at those who seem to disregard the fact that we are in the midst of a war. Piper says, most people show by their priorities and their, their casual approach to spiritual things that they believe that we're in peacetime, not wartime. Very few people think that we are now in a war greater than World War II and greater than any imaginable nuclear World War III, or that Satan is a much worse enemy than any secularist or terrorist, or that the conflict is not restricted to any one global theater, but rather is in every town and in every city throughout the world. Or that the casualties do not merely lose an arm or an eye or just their earthly life, but they lose everything, even their soul, and enter into a hell of everlasting torment. So life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Life is war. And so, brethren, it's a fatal mistake to forget that we're in a war, for our enemy never forgets that. There are too many oblivious Christians that are walking about on the battlefield completely unaware of what's going on around them. So don't be one of them. There are no ceasefires in this war. There are no temporary suspensions of fighting so that peace talks might take place. There shall never be any armistice, any truce. There shall never be any agreement between us and the enemy to momentarily pause this war. No, this war shall rage on until the very last moment of the very last day, until Christ returns at his second coming. Therefore, always remember, never forget that you are in a war. And secondly, always remember, never forget that not only are you in a war, but you are a soldier in this war. You are a soldier in this war. In Hebrews 9, verse 14, we're told that the blood of Christ has the power to purify our conscience from dead works. Why? To serve the living God. Our consciences are purified from dead works so that we can serve the living God. And the service that we give him is military service. We've been saved to serve. We've been saved to serve and to serve as soldiers. The moment we are regenerated, the moment of our justification, the moment that our salvation process begins or is initiated, we are given fatigues. We're given a military uniform. We're granted access to the full armor of God because we've been enlisted to serve in his army as a soldier. The effectual call of salvation is a call of duty, not just a call to glory. It is that. 
But the effectual call of salvation is a call of duty, not just a call to glory. God has drawn you to him that you would then draw your sword for him. God has drawn you to him that you would then draw your sword for him. All Christians are called to be soldiers. There are no exceptions. There are no spectator Christians in this war. There are no civilian Christians in this war. There are no pacifist Christians in this war. There are only soldiers. And that includes women and children. Moreover, as soldiers, we are not to be sissies. In this particular context of warfare, all Christians are to be masculine, not effeminate, even the women. We are all to display the attributes of a soldier, decisiveness, resoluteness, courage, violence. Paul commands the entire church at Corinth to act like men. Act like men. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. And when he says that, he's speaking to the whole congregation. He's not just speaking to the men, but to the men, the women, and the children. And just as an aside, just as a by-the-way comment, I've been involved in several churches, and what I have found is that many times the fiercest and most fearless warriors among us can be found among the women. Brethren, our life is military. As Christian soldiers, we are called to active duty at all times. There are no vacations. We are never to take our armor off. We are never to relax and let our guard down. Additionally, we are all called to individual combat. There's no excuses. The Lord has decreed particular battles for you to test your faith. And he's decreed particular battles for me to test my faith. As soldiers, we must each face our demons. And you have to do the fighting. I have to do the fighting. We must each wrestle with the enemy. We must each resist temptations. There is no retreat and there is no compromise. We are to have the same attitude toward sin that sin has toward us. Total annihilation. Total annihilation and destruction. As John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So always remember, never forget that you are a soldier in a war. Thirdly, always remember that you're in a war. Always remember that you are a soldier in this war. But always remember, never forget that you are not alone in this war. You are not alone in this war. Satan and his demons are real. Justin talked about that last week when he was going through the section in Revelation. Satan and his demons are real, and they are many. There is not a place under heaven where Satan doesn't have troops. And more than likely, there is not a single solitary Christian soldier without some of these cursed spirits haunting him and watching him wherever he goes. Furthermore, as we have learned, our enemy is organized. There's a military hierarchy among these angels that have fallen. There's a chain of command authority structure among the demons, and Satan acts as their chief commander. And not only are they organized, they're unified. They are many, and yet there is one spirit of wickedness in them all. Moreover, they are immortal. These devils never die. They will hunt and hound each and every one of us all the way to the grave. They never sleep. 
They never grow weary. They are ever at their mission of malice. And as if all this were not bad enough, our enemy has a tremendous advantage over us in that they have the power to get into our thinking, to disrupt our thoughts, to disturb our thoughts. They can nudge our minds to wander into heresy. They can plant thoughts of doubt concerning our salvation. And they can dampen the fire of our faith down to an ember if we're not careful. So we face a formidable foe, but always remember, never forget, that you are not alone in this war. For one thing, Scripture indicates that only a third of the angels fell with Satan. We learn about that in Revelation 12, which means we still have two-thirds of the elect angels on our side. And are they not all ministering spirits, these elect angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That would be us. That's what Hebrews 1.14 tells us. Therefore, that's a two-to-one mismatch. For every one demon, there's two elect angels. So the devil might have his legions, but we have our legions upon legions. But more importantly, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us at all times. And on top of that, we have God the Son and God the Father who have both promised that no one can pluck us out of their hand. So we have been sealed and double-fisted protected by our triune God. So we have elect angels that God can send to help us. We have our triune God himself. But last of all, and certainly not least of all, we have each other. We have each other. Each one of us is a soldier in an army. Each each one of us is a soldier in an army. We're not meant to be lone rangers. We're not meant to be soldiering in solitude. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to fight alongside one another. We're to stir each other up to love and good works. We're to be as iron sharpening iron. We're to pray for each other. We're to march in unity together as an army of light. And that's why several times throughout the course of this series, I've exhorted us to get to know each other. We need to get to know each other. Indeed, in our study of the shield of the faith, one of the exhortations was, be part of your local phalanx. Be part of your local phalanx. Why has Christ gifted his church with preachers, teachers, and shepherds? To equip all of the saints with door-sized shields, like those of the Roman soldier that we would each be able to use the whole of Scripture as our scutum, our shield. He's given us preachers, teachers, and shepherds to build us up as the body of Christ, to form us into a spiritual testudo formation, a spiritual phalanx formation. He's given us preachers, teachers, and shepherds so that we would all attain to the unity of the faith, so that we would all be unified in our doctrine marching in lockstep with our shields joined together as a local phalanx. Therefore, find your place within the phalanx of Cornerstone by getting to know your fellow soldiers. Be protected by their shield of the faith, their knowledge and application of the scriptures, while at the same time providing them some protection from your shield of the faith, your knowledge and application of the scriptures. We're not to fight this war on our own. When we've been severely wounded, when we're suffering spiritual post-traumatic stress disorder from a grueling, drawn-out affliction or temptation, we sometimes need a seasoned veteran to carry, carry us to safety, to carry us back to the hope of our salvation. 
when we're down, when we're battle-weary, when we're crestfallen. We need to be cheered by the crest of the helmet of hope that we see adorning the spirits of our fellow soldiers. If you recall, in studying the helmet of hope, we made the observation that the hope of salvation is meant to adorn the Christian as the plume or the crest adorned the helmet of the Roman soldier. When you see one of your brethren wearing his or her helmet of salvation, crested with that full hope of glory, it can provide a morale boost, can act as a boon to your withering spirit. We all need each other to endure this long military campaign against so daunting an enemy. Therefore, always remember, never forget that you're not alone in this war. The Lord has told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and we have each other. Fourthly, always remember, never forget that you're on the winning side of this war. Always remember, never forget, you're on the winning side of this war. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In the world you will have tribulation. As soldiers in this army, your metal will be tested. So long as you are in this world, there will be tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Not, I will overcome the world. I have. I have. It's a done deal. We're on the winning side. Brethren, we must not become myopic or short-sighted. At the moment, it may not seem like Christ has overcome the world. When we look around at our own nation and we see the decadence of it, when we look at the world at large, the nations, and the evil that just continues to metastasize around the globe, it might not appear to us at this present moment that Christ is in control, that he has overcome, but rest assured that he has. Truth shall win in the end. Believe that. Truth shall win in the end. In studying the belt of truth, we investigated the, the New Testament Greek word for truth, which is aletheia. And that word, aletheia, the word for truth, it, it really means, the core idea is, ultimately, it's going to be verified when opposed. The truth will ultimately be verified when it is opposed. It will be attested to when it is put to the test. So the idea is, attestation through protestation. The more you protest, the more it is attested to. And we then proceeded to examine seven characteristics of truth. Truth is eternal. Truth is unchanging. Truth is omnipresent. So truth, it doesn't change over time. It doesn't change according to space. Truth is propositional. It has to be declared using words. Therefore, truth is intellectual. It requires a mind. Truth is inerrant, it is never wrong, and truth is moral, it is righteous. It is always morally right. And with each characteristic, we found that when that characteristic is opposed, it is verified. For example, if you try to say, well, truth can change, that statement could only be true if truth never changes. And we saw that with every single characteristic. You try, you try to oppose it, and it's verified. Moreover, when we took these characteristics and we combined them together, what we find is that truth must be declared from an eternal, unchanging, omnipresent, inerrant, righteous mind. Who is that? God. More specifically, that's our God, Jehovah. And so nothing is more powerful than truth because God is truth. 
And nothing is more powerful than God, surely. Can anyone oppose God, the truth, and be victorious? Of course not. What then shall we say to these things? If God, the truth, is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the truth, brethren. We are more than conquerors. The enemy has been defeated. Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Always remember, never forget, that you're on the winning side of this war. And fifthly, always remember, never forget, the war hero who has guaranteed our victory. Always remember, never forget, the war hero who has guaranteed our victory. To reiterate what was just said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our own righteousness. Well, that's not what it says. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our war hero. In studying the breastplate of righteousness, we noted that the righteousness that protects our spiritual vital organs, our heart and our intestines, the splankna, the thing that protects those is the imputed righteousness of Christ, not our imparted righteousness. Whatever imparted righteousness that is worked in and through us by way of the Holy Spirit, it depends upon or flows out from the imputed righteousness of Christ. We're never, to, we're never to claim our imparted righteousness as our own, as if it's produced in and of ourselves. For this would be self-righteousness. No, all glory, all glory, all glory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. As we sang last week in Martin Luther's famous hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. It is absolutely pivotal that we always remember this truth, that Christ is our righteousness. The doctrine of justification is essential when it comes to doing battle with the enemy because our default is to go back to a works-based mentality, to think that we need to earn our salvation. And the enemy knows that, so he's constantly trying to stir us up to go back to that default. And so we need to remember the truth of the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is vital in our spiritual warfare. Therefore, always remember, never forget, the war hero who has guaranteed our victory. Sixthly, always remember... Never forget the objective of this war. Always remember, never forget the objective of this war. Christ is our commander-in-chief. We are the church militant. And our military command, uh, campaign is aimed at the single, specific, strategic objective of fulfilling the Great Commission. Ultimately, the Great Commission is about proclaiming the gospel and teaching and disciplining ourselves and others to pursue holiness and to oppose unholiness. 
But our ability to freely do these things, to pursue holiness and to proclaim the gospel, is never guaranteed or fixed and must always be fought for because our enemy is always fighting to take it from us. We talked about this at length, the pursuit of holiness and proclaiming the gospel, in our study of the war boots, the gospel of peace. Our war boots, like those of the Roman soldier, provide us with both stability and mobility. We're not only to know the truth, but to make the truth known. We're not only to hold our ground, stability, but to take new ground, mobility. And in attempting to take new ground so as to fulfill the objective of our Great Commission, it's imperative that we remember that the gospel is not merely proclaiming the message of salvation to the lost. It's not merely about that. It is, it is a way of life. Philippians 1, verse 27 and 28, we looked at that, and we saw that our heavenly citizenship, our divine political affiliations, are to be on display in the way that we conduct ourselves in our whole manner of life. As citizens of this heavenly kingdom, we're not to live our lives on earth, sorry, we are to live our lives on earth in a constant pursuit of holiness, in a constant pursuit of holiness, and we're to encourage others to do the same, whether they're believers or not. Conversely, we are to oppose those things that would prevent or prohibit us from pursuing holiness and proclaiming the gospel, and that would prevent or prohibit others from pursuing holiness. Therefore, we're to speak the truth to those around us who believe and promote theories, ideas, or arguments that prevent or prohibit the pursuit of holiness in society. We are to speak the truth to those around us who believe and promote theories, ideas, and arguments that prevent or prohibit the proclamation of the gospel and gospel living to those who would oppose the knowledge of God. We proclaim a gospel of peace. Yes, we proclaim a gospel of peace. But peace is always the product of holiness. Peace is always the product of holiness. It's never the product of compromise. There can be no peace where there is no holiness. To the extent that a society is pursuing holiness, you should expect a proportional amount of peace that goes with that. To the extent that a society is not pursuing holiness, as and is in fact um, pushing against holiness, you should expect less peace and more unrest. And that's exactly what we see in our own nation right now. Thus, if we desire greater peace in our society, we must promote that which is holy and oppose that which is unholy. And we're to do this boldly, vehemently. We're to proclaim the gospel and promote gospel living in our whole manner of life, confidently and unashamedly. This is the objective of this war. The gospel is not solely about evangelism. It's not solely about that, saving the lost. It's also about being salt and light upon the earth. It's about letting our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to God. Taking new ground for the kingdom does not always or necessarily equal salvation of the lost. Taking new ground entails putting on our gospel war boots and marching as children of light so as to expose the works of darkness. As we proclaim the gospel through our manner of life, as we march as soldiers of light, 
the Lord is often pleased to effectually call many sons of disobedience into his marvelous light. But sometimes the Lord is simply pleased to use this gospel light to repel or to restrain the darkness in society. Either way, ground is being taken and our objective is being met. So always remember, never forget the objective of this war, fulfilling the Great Commission by proclaiming the gospel in our whole manner of life, teaching and disciplining ourselves and others to pursue holiness, and vigorously opposing anything or anyone that would prevent us from doing so. Seventhly, always remember, never forget the weapons of your warfare. Always remember, never forget the weapons of your warfare. Namely, the sword, the word, and prayer. The reoccurring theme throughout this series, the the mantra, if you will, has been this. Don't expect to make much progress in your spiritual warfare if you're not willing to be a serious student of the word. And the reason that this has been our, our mantra is because every piece of the armor points us back to the word either in general, to the entirety of Christian doctrine, the faith, or to specific doctrines of the word. So the doctrine of justification with the breastplate of righteousness, or the doctrine of salvation with our our helmet of salvation. Now, since all of the armor points us back to the word, it's helpful to know how we can read the scriptures with most spiritual profit. And to this end, with the help of my Puritan friend, Thomas Watson, I'd like to provide a few directions as to how we might gain the most spiritual profit in reading and study of the scriptures. So I'm going to give you uh, four points of direction from this short work by Thomas Watson. This is titled, How We May Read Scriptures with Most Spiritual Profit. It's an excellent short little work. He's got 24 directions. I'm only going to give you four. I'm just going to whet your appetite so that hopefully you'll want to read the whole thing. And if you want a copy, I can get you one. I have a PDF copy. I can email it to you. So just ask me for it. So one of his directions is this. Meditate upon what you read. Meditate on what you read. The bee sucks the flower and then works it into the hive and so turns it into honey. By reading, we suck the flower of the word, and by meditation, we work it into the hive of our mind, and so it turns to our profit. Another direction he gives, he says, dwell upon the meatiest passages of Scripture. Dwell upon the meatiest passages of Scripture. Though the whole counsel of Scripture is excellent, yet some parts of it deserve a greater emphasis because they are more nourishing. Reading the various names of the tribes of Israel going through the genealogies of the patriarchs, is not going to maybe have the same weight as studying the faith and the new creature. So dwell upon the meatiest passages of Scripture. Another direction, practice what you read. The written word is not only a rule of knowledge, but a rule of obedience. The written word is not only a rule of knowledge, but a rule of obedience. It not only serves to mend our sight, but to mend our walk. David calls God's word a lamp to his feet. A lamp to his feet. It was not only a light for his eyes to see by, but for his feet to walk by. Reading without practice 
will be but a torch to light men to hell. So there's the bluntness of Thomas Watson. And a fourth direction, the last one I'm going to give. Pray for profit. Pray for profit. Make David's prayer your own. David prays, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So implore the Holy Spirit for guidance. Even though the ship has a compass to sail by and has been equipped for sailing, yet without the gust of wind, it cannot sail. Though we have the word as our compass to sail by, unless the Holy Spirit blows upon us, we cannot sail with profit. So this is just a sampling of the directions given by Watson to encourage us in our biblical swordsmanship, to assist us in better wielding the most powerful weapon in all the cosmos, which is the sword of the Spirit. And in this last direction that we looked at, where he says that we are to pray for profit in our reading, Watson makes the point that prayer is what enables us to wield the word or the sword with any effect. As we learned last week, without prayer, all of the other pieces of our spiritual armor are powerless and ineffective, including the sword. Indeed, prayer itself is a weapon. Prayer is a secret weapon. As we heard from Charles Spurgeon last week, he says, when you cannot find your sword, you may take to the weapon of all prayer. Your powder may be damp, your bowstring may be relaxed, but the weapon of all prayer need never be out of order. Leviathan laughs at the javelin, but he trembles at prayer. Sword and spear need furbishing, but prayer never rusts. Devils may surround you on all sides, but the way upward is always open. And as long as that road is unobstructed, you will not fall into the enemy's hand. We can never be taken by blockade, by escalade, by mine or storm, as long as heavenly supplies can come down to us by Jacob's ladder to relieve us in the time of our necessities. So always remember, never forget the weapons of your warfare, namely the word and prayer. Eighthly, always remember, never forget that you shall leave a legacy in how you fought in this war. You shall leave a legacy in how you fought in this war. War veterans who have fought well for their country are often celebrated and commemorated in special ways. Indeed, our nation has set aside a day out of the year, Memorial Day, to remember and mourn those military personnel who have died while serving in our armed forces. In fact, we just celebrated Memorial Day this past week. Those who have fought well and died for king and country have an honorable legacy that they leave behind. And it's no different for us as Christian soldiers. It's no different for those Christian soldiers who fight, fight well and give their lives for the sake of the King of Kings and his heavenly kingdom. They leave an honorable legacy for others to emulate. And we have many such examples that have been forever immortalized in the pages of Scripture. Indeed, in Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called Hall of Faith, the author lists several Old Testament heroes of the faith in order to inspire his readers to follow in the tradition of so great a cloud of witnesses, to strive to leave behind a similar legacy of faithful service to the Lord. Not only do we have many heroes of the faith that have been immortalized in the canon of Scripture, 
But we also have many biological, or sorry, biographical works of faithful saints throughout church history, including those saints who sacrificed their very lives for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, the martyrs. This is our Christian heritage. And it's important that we realize that we're part of a Christian heritage. We are part of a Christian heritage. The way that we fight in our generation is meant to inspire the way that those in the subsequent generations are going to fight. As Christians, each of us shall have a legacy that we shall leave behind with regard to how we fought in this war. There's a, a children's rendition of John Bunyan's uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in this children's rendition, it's, it's a retelling of the story. And so there are additions that are added uh, to the original story of Pilgrim's Progress. And one of those additions takes place at the point in the story when Christian is staying at the palace beautiful. And while he's there, Christian is brought to the armory within the palace. And when he arrives at the door to the armory, he notices that the door seems to have been slashed and hacked at. And he's informed that much of what is inside the armory has also been slashed and hacked at because this is, after all, the, thing of, the stuff of war. Upon entering the armory, Christian sees several bright banners that are hanging from the rafters across the ceiling of the room. And with each banner, it is depicting the individual story of a pilgrim making his or her way to the celestial city. And there are numerous banners that are still blank. Christian also observes that there are shields and breastplates and helmets that are hung upon the walls. And some of the armor is bright and new and shiny, but much of it was dented in many places and even stained with battle wounds. Now, when we fast forward to the end of this retold version of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we read of Christian and Hopeful crossing the river of death, the, the Jordan River. And when they come out of the waters on the other side of the river, they immediately feel their bodies are changed. All that was mortal had washed away in the river. And Christian's armor had floated back to the other shore, where it was being reverently gathered by fair hands so that it might be carried back to the armory at the Palace Beautiful, where at that moment a new banner was being hung to depict his pilgrimage to the celestial city. Beautiful imagery. Brethren, always remember, never forget, that you shall leave a legacy in how you fought this war. Therefore, as long as, you, as we still have breath, let us spend and be spent for our sweet Lord. We may not all be rewarded the distinguished purple heart of martyrdom, but we all need to be fighting the good fight so as to obtain the crown of righteousness, to leave behind a legacy that is worthy of our calling, our call of duty. What is your legacy going to be? What is your legacy going to be? How will your children remember you? How will your grandchildren remember you? How will your friends and extended family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, how will they remember you? Will they remember you as being a lion-hearted, stout Christian warrior who fought the good fight to the end? 
Or will they remember you as being nearly indistinguishable from the worldling? What will be your legacy? Always remember, never forget, that you shall leave a legacy in how you fought in this war. And ninthly, finally, always remember, never forget, that after this war comes glory. After this war comes glory. In studying the helmet of salvation, we learned that this helmet is a helmet of hope. And we also learned that the word hope in the Greek New Testament, elpis, conveys the idea of a pleasurable expectation of what is sure or certain. What is sure or certain. Accordingly, when the word hope is used in the New Testament with reference to our salvation, it's not referring to something that is subject to doubt, something that may or may not happen, something with terms and conditions that are subject to change. No, our hope of salvation is a sure thing. It's not wishful thinking. As we read in Romans 8, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those whom God justified, them he also glorified. Not those whom he justified, he shall glorify. No. He also glorified. Past tense. Not future tense. In other words, our glorification is a done deal. If we've been justified, glory is guaranteed. That is our hope. Glory is certain. Brethren, rest assured, those whom he justified, those whom he has called to duty, them he also glorified, he has called to glory. The effectual call is a call of duty, but upon the completion of our tour of duty, there is an immediate call to glory. Consider these words from Charles Spurgeon regarding our hope of glory. He writes, In our Christian pilgrimage, it is well for the most part to be looking forward. Forward lies the crown, and onward is the goal. Whether it be for hope, for joy, for consolation, or for the inspiring of our love, the future must, after all, be the grand object of the eye of faith. Looking into the future, we see sin cast out, the body of sin and death destroyed, the soul made perfect and fit to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Looking further yet, the believer's enlightened eye can see death's river passed, the gloomy stream forded, and the hills of light attained on which stands the celestial city. He sees himself enter within the pearly gates, hailed as more than conqueror, crowned by the hand of Christ, embraced in the arms of Jesus, glorified with him, and made to sit together with him on his throne. The thought of this future may well relieve the darkness of the past and the gloom of the present. The joys of heaven will surely compensate for the sorrows of earth. Hush, hush my doubts. Death is but a narrow stream, and you shall soon have crossed it. Time, how short, eternity, how long, death, how brief, immortality, how endless. I think even now I can see Canaan's clusters dangling before my eyes. The road is so, so short. I shall soon be there. 
Brethren, always remember, never forget that after this war comes glory. All right. Having considered nine pivotal points that we must always remember, never forget, with regard to our spiritual warfare, I shall leave you with one final exhortation. And this final exhortation is, take heaven by storm. Take heaven by storm. This exhortation comes from Matthew 11, verse 12, in which Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence, and the violent seize it by force. Jesus is here referring to those who are fired up by God to aggressively and decisively act in pursuing the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is to be taken forcefully and violently. And this idea of being violent for heaven is developed more fully in a small book, once again by Thomas Watson, which is titled, Heaven Taken by Storm. So if you would like to explore this concept of being violent for heaven in greater depth, I highly recommend this book. At any rate, in my mind, when I envision the idea, this idea of taking heaven by storm, the picture I see is of an army of Christian soldiers who are determined to get into the fortress of heaven, whose walls are salvation and whose gates are praise. We could call this fortress, fortress Fort Glory. But they're having to endure heavy fire from an enemy that is doing everything in its power to prevent them from taking this fortress. I can't help but think of the concluding scene of my favorite war movie of all time, Glory. The movie Glory is based on a true story of the leadership of Colonel Robert Shaw over the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry Regiment during the Civil War. The 54th Massachusetts Regiment was the first all-black regiment to fight for the Union Army. And Colonel Robert Shaw had to continually mediate on behalf of his troops so that they would be treated equally, that they would be given the same supplies as any other non-black regiment would, and that they would be given equal pay. He even had to fight on their behalf so that they could have the chance to go into battle and prove their mettle as soldiers. And in July of 1863, Colonel Shaw is given the opportunity to lead his regiment in an attack against Fort Wagner in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, it's basically a suicide mission because they are the first regiment to be sent in. They're leading the attack. So Shaw knows that he and most of his men, most of the men in his regiment are more than likely not going to survive. And in the film, Matthew Broderick, who plays the, the role of Colonel Shaw, he tells the press that is there gathered on the beach at Charleston, he tells them, remember this day. Remember what you see here. And he gives them some personal letters. And there's a very moving scene where the young colonel looks out upon the ocean and he listens to the crashing of the waves to the cry of the seagulls and he's trying to muster up that strength to do what he knows he has to do he looks at the fort he knows it needs to be taken and he knows it's probably going to mean his life 
It's probably going to be his last opportunity to hear the crashing of those waves, cry of those seagulls. It reminds me very much of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he dismounts his horse and he leads his regiment in the storming of Fort Wagner. Now in the movie, the regiment has to scale a sandy embankment in order to get into the fort and take it. But they're under heavy fire and the regiment is at the bottom of the embankment and so they're hesitant to proceed. So the colonel draws his pistol and he cries out, come on, 54! And he charges up the embankment. And almost immediately he's shot. But he doesn't stop charging. He continues on. And then he's shot several more times. And with his arms out, he falls on his back upon the embankment. But this valiant act rallies his men, and they all as one charge up the embankment to take the fort. Sadly, the regiment suffered many casualties, and the fort was never taken. However, although the regiment suffered many casualties, Shah's leadership and the regiment became legendary. They inspired hundreds of thousands of black men to enlist for the Union, which then helped turn the tide of the war to its ultimate victory. Colonel Shaw was only 25 years old when he died. I can't help but see many spiritual parallels here between this battle of Fort Wagner and our own battle to take Fort Glory. Christ, like Colonel Shaw, acted as a mediator for those who had been afflicted and enslaved. Colonel Shaw was white, and those whom he fought to bring equality to were black. Christ was a Jew, and yet he fought to bring equality to both Jews and Gentiles, reconciling both groups to God and to each other by the shedding of his blood. These black men who fought under the command of Colonel Shaw at the Battle of Fort Wagner, they were voluntarily fighting to free more of their kin. Although Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation had already declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforth shall be free, nevertheless, warfare was necessary to make that a reality for those who were still enslaved within the rebellious states. Similarly, God has declared an Emancipation Proclamation for sinners, the gospel. Yet warfare is necessary to free those elect who are still enslaved within their rebellious state. In the battle of Fort Glory, we must voluntarily fight to free more of our kin. Christ, like Colonel Shaw, was young. He was in the pride of his life, yet this did not stop him from laying down his life for those whom he loved. Christ, like Colonel Shaw, commanded men to write what they saw. He wanted letters to be passed down so that it would not be forgotten. Christ, like Colonel Shaw, led by example. He led the charge to take the fort, and he died with his arms out in doing so. However, unlike Colonel Shaw, who died and remained dead, death could not hold Christ. Death could not hold our war hero. Christ was resurrected from the dead and took Fort Glory on our behalf. And he's there now. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf. He's calling us to duty. And he's calling us to be with him in Fort Glory. 
He's calling us to be violent for heaven, to take heaven by storm. And I can hear his call now. Come on, 54. You can do it. I love you. I'm always with you, even to the end of the age. I'll see you in the fort. To conclude this series, you know I have to quote Charles Spurgeon one last time. Hear what he has to say about continuing in the faith, fighting the good fight to the end. Perseverance is the badge of true saints. The Christian life is not merely a beginning in the ways of God, but also a continuance in the same as long as life lasts. It is with the Christian as it was with the great Napoleon. Napoleon said, conquest has made me what I am, and conquest must maintain me. And so, under God, dear brother in the Lord, conquest has made you what you are, and conquest must sustain you. Your motto must be excelsior. Excelsior is Latin for higher, ever upward. He only is a true conqueror and shall be crowned at the last, who continues until the war's trumpet is blown no more. Perseverance is therefore the target of all our spiritual enemies. The world does not object to you being a Christian for a time. If she can but tempt you to cease your pilgrimage and settle down to buy and sell with her in Vanity Fair, The flesh will seek to ensnare you and to prevent you from pressing on to glory. The flesh will say, it's weary work being a pilgrim. Come, just give it up. Am I always to be mortified, says the flesh? Am I never to be indulged? Just give me at least a furlough from this constant warfare. Satan will make many a fierce attack on your perseverance. It will be the mark for all of his arrows. He will strive to hinder you in service. He will insinuate that you're doing no good and that you want to rest. He will endeavor to make you weary of suffering. He will whisper, just curse God and die. Or he will attack your steadfastness. What is the good of being so zealous? Just be quiet like the rest. Sleep as the others do. Let your lamp go out as the other virgins do. Or he will assail your doctrinal sentiments. Why do you hold so fast to doctrine? Sensible men are getting more liberal. They're removing the old landmarks. Just fall in with the times. Get with the program. Up with your shield, Christian. Draw your sword and cry mightily unto God that by his spirit you may endure to the end. To quote Charles Wesley from his hymn, Soldier of Christ, Arise. From strength to strength, go on. Wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. For our benediction, I leave you with Galatians 6, 9 and Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Onward, Christian soldiers. Come on, 54. Take heaven by storm. I'll see you in the fort. Amen.